Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's show is The Whole World is Watching, The Legacy of 1968. Our opening song is Inflated Tear by Roland Kirk, performed in Prague in 1967. A prelude of sorts of what was to come. Across the globe, it was a year of countless uprisings. In the U.S., it was the year of police violence against protesters at the Chicago Democratic Convention. It saw the, it saw the Vietnam War's Tet Offensive, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, and the COINTELPRO infiltration of the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords. And in Bloomington, Indiana, along with numerous anti-Vietnam War student protests, Ku Klux Klan members firebombed the African-American-run black market on Kirkwood. Inside this whirlwind of violence and upheaval, the artist and the activist merged to leave a remarkable record of the radicalism of 1968. Here is William Burroughs from The Coming of the Purple Better One from Esquire, published in November 1968. The youth rebellion is a worldwide phenomenon that has not been seen before in history. I do not believe they will calm down and be ad execs at 30, as the establishment would like us to believe. Millions of young people all over the world are fed up with the shallow, unworthy authority running on a platform of bullspit. You can guess that I altered that last word. And yet five decades after the civil rights movement, American society remains hierarchical exclusionary, and stubbornly resistant to change. Five decades after the so-called second wave feminism, pornography is a primary entertainment industry in this country. Five decades have elapsed and millions of young people in this country did indeed become ad execs and millions more like to watch television about ad execs and their poor, lost, tiny souls. Oh boy. I'm in trouble already, Joe. <laughs> my, my guest in the studio is Joan Hawkins. Joan is an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the IU Media School. She's written extensively on experimental and avant-garde cultures. Her most recent book is Downtown Film and TV Culture, 1975 to 2001. And she's a member of the Writers Guild at Bloomington and the Burroughs Century. She's a friend, a return guest. And she's been a host of Interchange in the past as well. Welcome, Joan Hawkins. Thank you. Now, we're not here for no reason. Uh, 1968 is always a year worth discussing, but there's quite a bit going on in our fair fair town that has to do with 1968, Joan. Yes. Um, So this, we've actually started some events already, but um, 
I think everything really kicks off Friday night. There's going to be, as part of the um, First Friday Gallery Walk series, mm-hmm. there's going to be an opening at the Eiffel Gallery of Ricky Ducournay's uh, painting. She's a wonderful painter and a surrealist writer. And if you know the Steely Dan song, Ricky, Don't Lose That Number, it's that Ricky. <laughs> um, so we're, there's going to be an exhibit of her, of her artwork we have a wonderful lineup of readers who are going to be performing her writing. Uh, there's a jazz trio led by Kyle Cross that will be playing. We're going to have wine and cheese and sell books, and we will have our full schedule there oh, so you can take exciting. a look. But it'll be a week long. Starting with that Friday, then it'll be a week-long series of events commemorating the 50th anniversary of 1968, both uh pieces about 1968, so we're having uh, an academic conference. We're also recreating some music works from 1968, and we're trying to trace the legacy of radical aesthetics into the 21st century. Oh boy, that's a lot. It is. (laughs) So this is uh, The Wounded Galaxies, uh, 1968, Beneath the Paving Stone, The Beach. It's a festival and symposium uh, produced by the Burroughs Century. Um, So uh, tell us a little about bit about both the tight the titles there are two titles there basically mm-hmm. wounded galaxies and beneath the paving stones the beach so wounded galaxies is a, a term that's taken from the William S Burroughs novel soft machine and there's a line in the book that says across the wounded galaxies uh, we interconnect um, and the second part of it beneath the paving stones the beach comes from the French situationists and it refers to two things it refers to the fact that during May 68 the May 68 uprising in Paris people were actually prying cobblestones up off the street to make barricades and to throw at the police and um, and there was sand underneath the cobblestones but also because the situationists believed in finding sort of authentic moments in everyday life mm-hmm. and that is um, big part of uh, what was motivating students at that time. Mm. I just was, uh, I've been reading uh, Les Miserables, and yeah. at a certain point there, tearing up the cobblestones yes, stones they, in there as well. They, I know they did it. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of this cons- persistent thread throughout mm-hmm. um, throughout French culture. And in fact, when, the, when Hausmann widened the boulevards in the 19th century, he did it because he wanted to make it harder for them to, for the strikers to build these barricades because oh, they really? used to be able to wall off the street. Oh, and to get around, you, you widen yeah. the boulevard. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you mentioned situationists there and surrealists, yes. and yes. you mentioned Paris and uh, uh, May 68. Uh, uh, we started off with Prague. Uh, I started in 67, a little <laughs> early, but uh, uh, 68 in Prague, yeah. uh, and, uh, the Soviets uh, sort of put the, their boot on revolution in, yeah. in Prague as well. Yes. Um, if you've read, um, readers, uh, listeners might be uh, familiar with The Unbearable Lightness of Being, mm-hmm. which is a novel about that time. There was a, a kind of Spring. Well, they called it the Prague Spring. Mm-hmm. So there was this opening of culture in Prague in the late 60s under the Dubček government. And the the intention was not to overthrow socialism, but to make it more of a Czech socialism and to uh, bring it more in line with sort of European notions of what socialism was and could be. And they wanted to move out of the shadow of Moscow. Mm-hmm. And so there was about a month, a month and a half period where suddenly there was much more freedom of expression, where there was a flowering of the arts, and then the tanks rolled in. A lot of tanks. And, a, mm-hmm. and the tanks uh, stayed. 
um, I was in Czechoslovakia in 1974, and the Soviets were still occupying Czechoslovakia at that time, mm. and and it was terrifying. I mean, they would march through the streets in groups of five, and ev- and people would just flatten against the walls to let them pass. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a like a beer hall one night, and some poor soul. I mean, he just had too much to drink. He got up on a chair and started saying something, and the doors opened, and in came these these guys and they just dragged him out oh boy yeah unbelievable wow well so 68 yeah what what what's in the water in 68 that this is happening multiple places yeah that that is a very good question because it wasn't just prague and chicago and paris it was a massacre of students in mexico city it was india it was pakistan it was argentina and brazil it was um germany and italy mm-hmm. and england and Scand- the scandinavian countries and ireland it was and several countries across the middle east it was just it was truly this moment where some kind of change was in the air. Why that year? I'm not sure. Mm. Well, that's interesting. That uh, you know, mentioning multiple times the the in the, in the setup the the response in the artistic response mm-hmm. as much as the political response. Yeah. You know, because the the politics is in the street. Yes. Um, versus, you know, electoral politics or right. uh, the politics of reform or these things are happening right. uh, in an immediate way and all, and being um, dealt with in a harsh manner as well. Uh, yes. Other than uh, the Soviets uh, bringing tanks in, how else were, were, were these uh, upheavals responded to? Well, the uh, May 68 uprising was very, that was uh, very violent. I mean, there was a general strike in France, and the police were sent out to quell the strike. And so there was just an awful, unlike the United States, I think, the French citizens were more appalled by Mm. the fact that the police were attacking university students. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't stop the fact that the police were attacking university Mm -hmm. students. And I have to say, again, having been in Paris, I wasn't there in 68, but I was there shortly after. Mm. And the French police are really quite terrifying Mm. um, because you never know what they have in their hands. They would kind of pull up in these VW vans and they would get out and they would always have their hands behind them. Mm. And you never knew quite what was coming at you until it was there with um, mm. I mean the US police were terrifying but you saw what they had right you, you were know. aware of what would happen exactly yeah. and what, and could kind of mass up together mm-hmm. depending on what you thought was coming at you is it primarily student revolts then across the globe or no well no. there were student revolts mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the globe but like in Paris one of the things that made it uh, so powerful was that they linked with a general strike on the part of the workers mm. and that's what enabled them to shut the country down. Mm. They did get to the point of, I mean, in Paris, a lot of it was, you asked earlier why 68, Mm -hmm. and I think that perhaps one of the reasons why 68 is that it was the last dying gasp of... um, of imperialism Mm. and colonialism. So in Mm. France, it was, you know, getting, finishing up the business of Algeria Mm -hmm. at long last. Mm -hmm. Um, In the United States, of course, it was the Vietnam War. Mm The um, so in in Paris there was this uh, 
there were people, the workers were striking for workers' rights. The students were striking to have more control over curriculum and to have some say in university politics. Everybody was upset with de Gaulle for the way that he was handling foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And so he stood up in the wake of, I mean, when there's a general strike in France, they take it very seriously. Nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Nothing goes in or out of, of Paris. Nothing goes in or out of the country. Um, at one point, they closed the airport. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, de Gaulle, as he had done many times before, you know, he was a great resistance hero. Mm-hmm. So he was sort of trading on that. So once again, he took his case to the French people and said that he was going to have a referendum vote. Did they, uh, did they approve of him or did they not approve of him? Mm-hmm. And for once, they resoundingly said, no, we don't approve. Mm. And so it looked as though there was going to be a, a constitutional crisis that they would have to dissolve the government and create a new republic. Instead of which, they put in Pompidou, mm-hmm. who had been de Gaulle's right-hand man. Mm-hmm. And so for the students and the workers, this was like de Gaulle light. Mm-hmm. So this did not quell the rebellion. Mm. But the uh, but what did happen then? Uh, so after about a month... Um, there was there was the determination was that there was going to be elections after mm-hmm. Pompidou had been put in that mm-hmm. there would be elections. There was as there was in this country this kind of moment of thinking, well perhaps electoral politics really will solve mm-hmm. the issue, mm-hmm. and so people kind of went, and Paris was in dire straits at that point because mm-hmm. nothing had come in to the city for mm-hmm. a month. I mean they had no food, um, so th- there was this kind of going back to business as usual. There were some reforms at Nanterre at the university. Mm. There were some reforms in the factories, uh, just enough mm-hmm. to make people go back home. Right. And then, of course, the elections came out and Pompidou won, and it was just like, oh, man. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll turn to Chicago when we, uh, we come back from a break. Okay. Uh, so it is time for a break. We'll begin uh, Les McCann and Eddie Harris's Compared to What, performed at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1968. We'll be listening to it for all of our breaks tonight. More with Joan Hawkins on the legacy of 1968 when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Back to Interchange.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is The Whole World is Watching, The Legacy of 1968. My guest is Joan Hawkins, one of the many hands involved in The Wounded Galaxies, 1968, Beneath the Paving Stones, The Beach, a festival and symposium produced by the Borough Century uh, that explores the intellectual and aesthetic legacy of 1968 during its 50th anniversary year. Programs focus on events that occurred in Paris, Chicago, and Prague of 1968 and examine their relationship to and resonance with current struggles in the U.S. and around the world. Um, We were talking about Paris when we went to the break, and uh, let's turn briefly, I guess, to Chicago for talking about sort of the big ones that you deal with here. Chicago is a big one, obviously, in this country. I would say uh, just to, I guess, give this a little bit of resonance, too, 1968 isn't that long ago. Right. Right? Um, Right. But Jen, like I'll confess to my own position as a um, citizen of the country, right, to have grown up uh, after 1968, to have grown up in, you know, basically what um, sort of a knowledge of the world happening probably in Reagan era, uh, maybe a little Jimmy Carter era, but into Reagan. So I grew up in Reagan era for the most part. 68 doesn't mean anything to me. Never other than like an ideal place where people always talk about, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of, (laughs) people always talk about 68. And and so in this, for this particular program, uh, or the work that I've tried to do on this program is really education of myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feminism in particular has been uh, an interesting Mm -hmm. and important thing to think about from that time period as well. Um, But what I tend to find out as we go through this is the way things have seemed to be uh, moving in the right direction in that period and then really getting squashed like a bug as the the country moved into a neoliberal response, I suppose, or the term we use now, neoliberal. It's been around for a while. Well, one of the things that I think really happened, I mean, as much as we were just trying to figure, I mean, coming, we came out of the Civil Rights Movement mm-hmm. and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So the very first sort of anti, anti-war marches and the first um, demonstrations on ca- college campuses for, again, for curricular mm-hmm. change. Um, that was pretty much dedicated by tr- being trained in nonviolence. By we had some kind of vague idea about marching mm-hmm. because that's what we had seen the civil rights mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, marchers do. So we, as much as we were struggling and trying to figure out how do you demand change, mm-hmm. how do you how do you make so, enough of a noise that people are going to listen to you? They, the the police, the forces uh, who were who were hell-bent on keeping demonstrations under control, they also were trying to feel their way. By the end of the 60s, going into the 70s, their response had pretty much ossified. Mm. I mean, they learned what to do. They learned They learned what to do pretty fast. And once that happened, it became very difficult, Mm. I think. Yeah, I think that generally we're we're constantly struggling with the idea of how it is that you, uh, you can get enough Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people, energy, um, yeah. solidarity is a word that we don't hear anymore. We hear intersectionality, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to say anything yeah, against yeah. the term. But uh, solidarity was a term we we might have used at one point, and yeah. and trying to get together and make a move together is uh, almost an impossible task anymore. It's the right. sort of the goal of the culture itself to separate us, uh, right. um, which is a part of this story too, right? As we right. move into trying to understand uh, situationist uh, films and, and responses. Right to the spectacle and and realizing that that's pretty much all we get. Well, you know, and I remember the, 
I mean, thinking about like the way that these divisions can work, I remember mm-hmm. the first time that we saw uh, the police come out as the tactical squad mm-hmm. in their uniforms. So when we first started marching, we were dealing, I mean, they were, on, police were armed, mm-hmm. obviously, and they wore helmets, but they were, you saw their faces, they were wearing basically regular uniforms. They were still quite terrifying because they sure. had weaponry mm-hmm. and they were not afraid to to hit people over the head with batons, mm-hmm. but they still, they looked like people. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly being in Golden Gate Park at an anti-war demonstration and seeing what looked to us like r- RoboCop yeah, coming yeah, yeah. in. You know, mm-hmm. people where you couldn't see their faces, they had militarized. Yeah. And they had militarized very quickly. And from that point mm-hmm. on, it became very, very difficult to yeah, do. Yeah, we talk police. about it now as if it's a new thing, yeah, right? It's like it's been militarized for a long time. And, yeah. and that's the, it's also the difficult thing about organizing and, and getting people together, I think, is that we're all always thinking we're new. Right, yeah. we're we're the people who have just started this, you know, this resistance. Right, right, and right. but we we don't seem to have much of a, a, I guess, institutional memory for resistance in the country. It yeah. seems like, uh, so uh, as we were saying, so Chicago, Chicago is uh, another uh, focal point of of I guess resistance and response more than right. anything else. Chicago is really a response example, I, th- I think, right, with the right. Democratic Convention and the the police response to that. Right. Um, So again, I think this is, for me, one of the sad things about the 60s is that we have sort of these catch terms. So we talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, Chicago 1968, and people have some vague idea that Mm. yippies went to Chicago (laughs) and there was going to be a riot. What are yippies? They were, (laughs) it was Abby Hoffman's group. I I can't remember what the acronym stands for, Young International Party Mm, of something, something. Um, But... Uh, they had everybody knows kind of that okay so young people went to Chicago expecting a rumble and then why did they complain when they got one um, but <laughs> with the, the establishment uh, so we're, we're uh, they well okay 60, so uh, who's that uh, Rockefeller um, it was Daly Mayor Daly Daly, Daly, Daly. Yeah. so there so the events leading up to the Chicago National Convention were that uh, the the Democratic Party had been moving to the left. Mm-hmm. Johnson had made a famous speech saying he would not seek nor would he accept the nomination mm-hmm. of his party. I remember the night he made that speech, and I was dancing with my boyfriend. All excited about it. Because yeah. we, yeah. we thought we had forced him out. We thought we were right. going to stop right. the war. And we thought that with him now leaving, the, the field was open for a peace candidate. Mm-hmm. Eugene Senator Eugene McCarthy... Mm-hmm contacted Robert Kennedy and said that he was thinking that he, McCarthy, was thinking about running for president for the nomination, Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't do it if Bobby Kennedy was going to run Mm -hmm. because he didn't want to split the peace vote and Kennedy was a Kennedy. Um, Bobby Kennedy at that point didn't think that there was much chance that a peace candidate could win, so he said he was not planning Mm -hmm. to run for president. So McCarthy began his campaign, and um, as some of you, your listeners may have heard me say before, I was in high school in 68, and I remember I was working on McCarthy's campaign, and for whatever reason, I was taking German classes in high school, and the German classroom became a hotbed of democratic (laughs) organizing (laughs) activity. Mm -hmm. So we would get together at 7.30 in the morning, and we had these mimeograph machines Mm, that we were making flyers. Mm -hmm. Um, So McCarthy began to 
get electoral votes. He began to, to he began to do well in the mm-hmm. primaries and mm-hmm. pick up electoral votes. And by the time it looked like actually a peace candidate could win, mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy then threw his hat in the ring. And when he did that, the thing that McCarthy had been afraid of happening, in fact, happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of McCarthy's support switched over to Kennedy. And McCarthy hung in there mm-hmm. up to the bitter end, but um, but he was he didn't have the electoral votes anymore, and he didn't have his fi- the financial machine right. had certainly switched over right. to Bobby Kennedy. So Bobby Kennedy is doing very well. Bobby Kennedy goes to the California. Uh, primary. He's winning. We, we know he's going to win the mm-hmm. California primary. He goes to the hotel mm-hmm. to make the speech, which we all thought was going to be not only, hooray, I won the California primary, right. but to kick off his campaign for president. And he's shot. Right. And when that happens, the so McCarthy's campaign has kind of fallen apart. Mm-hmm. The next person in line in terms of electoral college votes is Hubert Humphrey, Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Yeah. And so when uh, the Democratic National Convention started, people went to Chicago, not just kind of to rip up the street, but what they wanted to do was to demand that instead of adhering to the strict laws that say that electoral college votes determine who get this thing, that because Eugene McCarthy was closest to Bobby Kennedy in philosophy mm. and in political right. um, political policy, that, that Kennedy's electoral college votes should go to McCarthy, right. which would have made him the, the nominee. Right. And of course, that wasn't going to happen. No. And then uh, Daly's people reacted very badly. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember how many thousands. Uh, oh, it was horrifying. Yeah, you know, thousands of actual police, right? Yeah, yeah th- like yeah. ten thousand police. Yeah, it was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and um, and so much so, in fact, that on the floor of the Democratic National Convention, people were standing up and decrying what was happening. Hmm. Like, what are we doing hmm. here? Saying, you know, saying that we are enacting this great. Right. democratic process when out in the street people right. who are just trying to exercise their right to protest are being brutalized mm. so this as you say is uh, again part of uh, anti-war demonstrations as mm-hmm. much as anything else in this country yeah. and you did you did mention civil rights and you did mention uh, changing curricula as well at yeah. one point which is interesting yeah. I hadn't really thought about this as um, a focal point of contention right getting new uh, getting attention and credence for uh, educating for uh, particular groups, uh, black history, black studies, yeah. black, uh, Asian American studies as well, things of this nature are uh, are fairly new, obviously. Right. And so this ha- happens in this period as well. Right. Uh, the longest, the actually the longest student faculty strike in the United States was, uh, it lasted four months and it was at San Francisco State and it was not uh, organized around the war, it was being run by the Black Student Association trying to get a Black Studies, what we called them Black Studies Department. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in 68, it was still very old school. I mean, just the idea that students would be asking mm-hmm. to have a say in their education was a, a big thing that was not 
That was not something that was accepted. And uh, so students students fought to challenge the canon, to have black studies, to have gender, what we called then women's studies, Mm -hmm. to have uh, Latino studies, Chicano studies, we called it at that time, Mm -hmm. to have uh, Native American studies and Asian American Mm -hmm. studies, and to expand the curriculum to be something other than the Eurocentric thing that it had been. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's time for another break. We'll continue with another 120 seconds of Compared to What by Les McCann and Eddie Harris. More on the upheavals of 1968 and, if they amounted to anything, (laughs) when Interchange returns on WFHB. Slaughterhouses are killing hoes Twisted children are killing frogs Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs Tired old ladies kissing the dogs I hate the human love of that stinking mud I can't use it I'm Trying to make it real compared to what Come on baby And support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Folks don't know just what it's for. Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason. Half a one doubt, they call it treason. We're chicken feathers all the way out wonder. Got trying to make it real compared to what? Sunday sleep and nod, trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest tonight is our good friend Joan Hawkins, here to talk about 1968 and Wounded Galaxies, which is a uh, a festival and symposium produced by the Burroughs Century that's uh, beginning here uh, Friday, yeah. the 2nd, and running uh, a week. Right, it's through the 11th the Oh, February. the 11th. Okay, so that's more than a week then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, many, many things going on, films. Uh, demonstrations, uh, pianos burning. Yes, pianos uh, t- burning. Tell us quickly about pianos burning. <laughs> well, um, Anaya Lockwood is a well-known composer and musician, and in 1968, she created a piece called Piano Burning. She had found pianos down by the Thames River, and they were waterlogged. She apparently tried to restore them and couldn't and decided that she would give them 
voice one last time. So she dried them out and set them on fire. Mm. And when the heat hits the sound box of the piano, the sound is incredible. Mm. So she is coming to our fair city, and we are going to recreate Piano Burning. John Vickers, the director of the IU Cinema, has procured a 100-year-old upright monster of a piano mm, okay. that cannot be restored, but that's the sure, condition. Sure. And we're lugging it out to Dunmeadow Wednesday, February 7th, mm. and we are setting it alight, Piano starting burning. at 530 it takes about three hours for a piano to burn. <laughs> She's done it a few times, I imagine. And, um, yeah. um, and in case it's very cold that mm. night or in case people have a hard time just coming down to Dunmeadow, we are also going to live stream the event mm. into the commons area of Franklin Hall. That's fun. And so people can go and watch it on the big TV monitors if they want to be warm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and toasty without getting close to the piano itself. Mm. <laughs> so. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it will be fun. Yeah. It's going to be quite something. Very cool. Now, what uh, what is it that we're saying with that, Joan? What does piano burning mean? Does it mean anything? What does it mean anything? Yeah. Well, we're giving voice to the piano one last time. Sure, sure. Um, I think it's part and parcel of a a um, a kind of strand that read th- ran through the arts mm-hmm, of the 1960s, mm-hmm. which was pushing boundaries just about as far as they could go. Mm-hmm. So just as we were asking people to rethink the basis of social and political structures and social and political, um, oh, the the kinds of, of networks that mm-hmm. we create, mm-hmm. we were also asking people to question their assumptions about art, what mm-hmm. art was. And in the music world, that took the form of well, performance pieces like this, mm-hmm. but also things like John Cage's sure. Minutes of Silence, mm-hmm. the uh, atonal work that was done, and the stuff that was being done in rock with people like Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, mm-hmm. the fact that we had quadraphonic, um, quadraphonic broadcasts mm-hmm. coming out mm-hmm. from our FM stations. Right. Um, Hmm. Anything that would make you question what question the kind of organizing principle that had been had been handed down to us gratis right. of and thanks to AM radio, which was you know the two point something minute song. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot happening there. It's one of, again one of those things that gets gets difficult to parse when we start to talk about it, uh, mm-hmm. and what seems like. Uh, laudable things, you know. You, you yeah. can easily say these are these are great things to do and to prompt, and and but you also understand uh, the pushback to a, to a lot of these things from convention, from tradition, from particular types of people who are uh, already in power or have their lives sort of challenged by this kind yeah. of thing, right? And it's not a surprise; it comes from students generally. These are young people who have right. moved away from that tradition and convention called the home right and free in a sense right right uh, and um free especially during the free speech movement uh, in places right. where school was free right and exactly. you, and and this is uh, one of the reasons uh, the uh, economists of the time, right, wrote about making school not free anymore. That's right. So that That's so right. that students wouldn't feel like they could just destroy everything. I know. Which is pretty interesting. I know. The um public education in the 60s was truly public in the sense that it was funded by tax dollars and um, much more so than it is now actually and um, 
And it was much more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to San Francisco State, which was a it was a working class non residential college at mm-hmm. that time. But I was able to to pay my tuition. My tuition was something like seventy dollars a term <laughs> right. back in nineteen sixty eight. But I was able to like th- over the course of the summer, I could work extra hours it. at my job mm-hmm. and pay my tuition mm-hmm. without there being mm-hmm. much trouble. So we were not financially dependent on our parents right. in quite the same way that I think students right. are now. Right. And it was clear that, uh, you, I guess, Republican e- economists, Republican politicians decided the best way to change your ability to fight the system by, would be to put you into debt. Yes. <laughs> Which is That's the case, a, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a truth for yes. most of us. Yes. And to make a, to regulate the mm-hmm. um to regulate the job market mm-hmm. in certain kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So if co- if one of the purposes of a college education, I know this is going to sound horrible and, and very kind of pessimistic, but if one of the goals of having people go to college is to keep people out of a certain as part of the job market for, mm-hmm. say, four years, right. so people aren't entering that job market until they're 23, 24, 25, mm-hmm. instead of when they're 18. Mm-hmm. Um, the other pushback was that because of what happened in the 60s, there have been uh, regulations within universities to make sure that people can't stay too long right. at college. Right. That's part, I think, of the debt structure, but it's also part of this thing like you you, you can max out credits now. Mm. You couldn't when I was in school. Oh, okay. You know, you mm. would go until you completed your degree. Right. And if you wanted to take extra classes, that was fine. Now, mm. when you reach a certain number of credits, too bad if you haven't finished mm. your degree. You know, it's that's it. Right, right. This is Doug Storman Interchange. My guest is Joan Hawkins, Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies at the IU Media School. We're talking about 1968 and the IU Festival and Symposium Wounded Galaxies. We've touched a little bit on art there. Uh, Joan with uh, Anea, what was her last name again? Lockwood. Lockwood and Piano Burning, uh, which will take place in, in Dunmeadow, yeah, on February seventh. Yes, that sounds exciting. That, but obviously, there's a lot going on with the yeah. uh, festival and symposium. Uh, a lot of film, actually. Yes, so, yeah. you want to talk a little bit about what yeah. what that's about? Um, Jay Hoberman. The noted film critic is coming to IU. He's going to give a keynote address. And he's also, he's curating a program of films for us mm-hmm. um, around the theme of 1968. So we're showing a lot of interesting stuff. We're showing Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. We're showing uh, a documentary that Agnes Varda did of the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. We're showing... Um, Oh, uh, this wacky film that Otto Preminger made under the influence of acid called okay. Skidoo. All right. Where just a wild Jules Dessin, mm. who was a... Um, he was American. He was American, but right. he went Connecticut, to... Connecticut, I think, he was born Yeah, in. he went to Britain. He he was one of the people who was blacklisted. Right, one of the ten, right? And so yeah. he went to, um, to Britain to work, and then he came back to the United States to make this film uptight. Mm-hmm. So that... Just the fact that he was coming back to the United States made it a kind of interesting right. phenomenon for right. 68ers. Um, kind of a black exploitation film or in something? In a way, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so a wide range yeah. of films, actually. Yeah. We're, one of the things that we're showing that's not part of the IU cinema program is a film by Latin American filmmaker Fernando Beery, who mm. just passed away recently. And it's the a full three-hour version of his film, Org. Mm. And that's going to be Saturday, uh, which would be 
the 10th, I think. Okay. February 10th at 3 o'clock in the Moving Image Archive screening room which is in the bottom of Wells Library this is free mm. a lot of the things that we're doing are free or very 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 cheap right. and all open to the public so Ken Vandermark the jazz musician is coming his show which will be Thursday night is, is five dollars mm. Doug it's, you know, great, like, yeah. you can't get mm-hmm. out of Soma for that <laughs> seriously and you can right. see one of the great jazz music Musicians coming out that's, of Chicago. That's for fantastic. Five bucks. Well, there's so much going on. It's one of the things that that, that made uh, well makes a show like this difficult too. Is you want to talk about Everything. every yeah, yeah every as- aspect that you yeah. can. Now I did poke fun at you a little bit, not you per- in particular, but the idea of you know 68 came and went. The world is how it is right now. What has happened? How did we get? Uh, how do we have this moment of of uh, realization that that there were. Uh, ways to be strong. You mentioned already the the actual reaction to mm-hmm. uh, protest created a much stronger police reaction, a, a way in which they understood the best way to quell that kind of uh, response also. Um, and possibly you could argue that even the successes of the movements um, uh, created divisions mm-hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. Reforms in which groups got their own say, got to be uh, uh, shuffled into their own departments, and and sort of dispersed mm-hmm. in some sense, right? I always yeah. think the the you know the angry people in academia go into American studies and then just go stay over there, and, <laughs> and they're angry with each other and angry about everything else. And this may or may not be true, but the university has a way of 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 sort of. S- protecting itself by giving space to to these kinds of situations. So, um, you know, you can argue a lot of things, obviously, but here we are, as as I said before, you know, a a country full of pornography, a country full of Mm. opioid epidemic. You know, there's just so much going on that's really negative right now. And what are the lessons, you know? Well, I mean, to begin with, some things did... Some things did change and become institutionalized. I mean, some of the things that we take for granted now, they they were hard fought for, right. hard won. So the um, the fact that we do have departments like gender studies and mm-hmm. African American African diasporic studies that came out of the mm-hmm. that came out of the campus demonstrations of the 1960s. Um, the fact that we have food co-ops. Mm-hmm. That came out of the 60s. The fact that there is no more corporal punishment in the public school system, Mm -hmm. that came out of the 60s. I mean, so all of these, they were little victories. In a way, in a way, what happened to us during the 60s proved the situation is right, that it's very hard to affect large-scale political revolution, but you can chip away at the uh, aspects of everyday life and mm. create these chinks mm. where there are possibilities of actual cooperation and uh, the overturn of what had been, you know, just sacred cows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. Mm. For, you know, you mentioned pornography several times, and I would just say that for women, I mean, this is a particularly difficult time, I think, for women to mm-hmm. be living through because we're we're fighting everything, it seems like. And while I'm very glad that the, uh, you know, that the, the Me Too movement has ha- is, is happening and that the stories are coming out, it's also very hard to hear them and to yeah. realize that... Uh, 
to realize how, how systematically young women still are abused. Yeah. What I will say, though, is that it's so much better now than mm. it was. Yeah. Um, we do, as much as they're trying to overturn reproductive rights, mm-hmm. abortion is legal mm-hmm. in this country. It was not in 1968. Roe didn't happen until 1973. Right, right. And so I grew up in California, which had liberal reproductive rights legislation. But for a lot of women across the country, mm. you know, the the specter was pretty grim. Mm. Um, Stonewall didn't happen until 69. Um, When I was a young woman, just freedom of movement was so curtailed. Mm. I mean, when I walk into coffee shops now, coffee places now, and I see young women sitting at tables and they're studying, and nobody is coming over assuming that they're there to pick up a guy. Mm. They're allowed to to write their paper, to do their work. That was not the case in 1968. Mm. You know, just the fact that... going out with or even going out with another woman it was just assumed that certainly you couldn't be interested in talking to her right. you know obviously this was just a ruse that the two of you wanted to mm-hmm. make friends with somebody <laughs> it was um okay. it was a very it was a very different kind of time yeah. and place um we fought very hard so that in cases where women were willing to try to bring a rapist to trial we fought very hard to make sure that the victim was not put on trial herself. Right. Um, throughout the 60s, if you, had, if you were not a virgin at the time that you had been raped, your entire sexual history would become part and parcel right. of sure. the trial. Yeah. And, um, and those, yeah, I mean, those things we joke about now, those were real questions like, what were you wearing? Right. What were you doing mm-hmm. out by yourself at night? Mm-hmm. Didn't you know this was going to happen? Right. Yeah. So mm. the so some things have changed. We didn't have Title Nine, right? And so right. Um, the idea that not only were schools, you know, schools were not being encouraged or being told that federal funding would be withheld if they didn't make, say, athletic opportunities available to women or right. STEM opportunities available to women, and so they had no incentive mm. to do so, yeah. and mm. they didn't. It's time for a break. Yeah. Uh, This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Uh, We're talking with Joan Hawkins about 1968. We're going to listen to the final few minutes of Compared to What by Les McCann and Eddie Harris. Uh, More with Interchange when we come back.
the love I'm hanging on me push and shove Possession is the motivation That is hanging up The goddamnation Looks like we always end up In a rut Everybody now Trying to make it real Compared to what Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest tonight is our good friend Joan Hawkins. She's talking about 1968 and Wounded Galaxies, a festival and symposium going on starting uh, this Friday through the 11th of February. Um, Before we forget, uh, Joan, do you want to give us uh, information about how people can check out uh, stuff going on? Yes. Um, So there's a website and everything is posted there. The website is Media School, all one word, mediaschool.indiana.edu slash woundedgalaxies, all one word. And um, one highlight that we didn't talk about is that Griel Marcus is mm-hmm, coming and mm-hmm. giving a keynote address on February 9th. And it's free and open to the public, but we're not ticketing, so get there early oh. and but how, uh, how, much, line how many up. spaces are there? So I, th- I think the cinema holds about 200 okay. people, but we expect a, a large turnout. Yeah, that'd be that. good. Now, before we get out of here, uh, Joan, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned the situation as many yeah. times, and we didn't yeah. really talk about them, we didn't uh, define them even, so can you give us yes. some sense of who we're talking about with the situation? So a wild and crazy group. Yeah, a bunch. I know the one, uh, Guy Debord is one, one, yes. one in particular particular Society of the Spectacle. Uh, I yes. assume there are many others, though. Yes, Asker yeah. Yord. It was actually quite a small group. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, okay. it was. A, okay. well. One of the books about them is called On the Passage of a Few People. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they were a few people. Powerful group. Uh, I know, yeah. they were. Their yeah. ideas have, mm-hmm. have lasted quite a lot. And I must say that in part because Griel Marcus did, who's a rock and roll critic, mm-hmm. who did the hard work of excavating, like, piecing together all of these like weird little bits and pieces of things that he was finding Mm. and stitched together this story and it was really after Lipstick Traces came out that um that there was a, a resurgence of interest, and suddenly then we got uh, the the uh, Situationist Reader. Mm-hmm. We got uh, reissues of Society of the Spectacle, mm-hmm. new translations of it. We got so, suddenly a lot of material mm-hmm. about the Situationists mm-hmm. came out. So who they were, they were a group of Marxists who were working in the wake of... Uh, Althusser and Gramsci. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the early days of Marxist ideology, everything was sort of assumed to be happening kind of at the conscious surface level. So workers were oppressed. They were alienated from their labor. Mm -hmm. One way of dealing with that was to take to the streets and do direct political action. If there was anything like... um, an ideology that was being imposed, it was being imposed very directly. You will work, you know, 60 hours. Your five-year-old child will go into the factory Mm -hmm. and put heads on pins because he has little hands. Mm -hmm. You know, and those things were just men. And if you don't like it, Mm -hmm. you can just leave. Sure. Um, That's called freedom, Joan. Yeah, (laughs) I know. The freedom to choose. Um, What 
when Gramsci and Althusser began writing, what they realized was that there were ways in which we were socialized to become good cogs in whatever part of the economic system we belonged in, and that this happened in such a way that uh, that capitalist life and capitalist strictures became naturalized mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. us. And so um, Althusser said that, you know, there were these... Uh, ideological state apparatuses that were the the family, the school, and the sure. church, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And that by the time you were old enough to begin to think about making mm-hmm. decisions, you already had imbibed a whole set of values yeah. that you weren't even You're aware of. You're already in of. the box. So, yeah. for example, we you know we do ideological analyses of film mm-hmm. or of anything really, but let's take film. Mm-hmm. Uh, European and American film is structured on the close-up mm. and shot-counter-shot. And we we learn very early from the time we're children and a, a vocabulary of film that says that, okay, so you and I are speaking right now. The camera would look at you, and we would get sort of a very close headshot of you, and I would see that you were nodding and mm-hmm. you were paying attention am, to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then and then the camera would cut to me, and I would be mm-hmm. making my gestures. Mm-hmm. And then the camera would go back to you to show your reaction to me. We learned this at, like, age three or four. Mm-hmm. We know that this happens. Um, I never see any ideological discussion of film that ever talks about the fact that we live in an individualistic society, that there might be some other way, say, right. to organize society or to organize the vocabulary of cinema. Mm-hmm. African cinema, some African cinema, revolves around medium long and long shots, for mm. example. I got you. And, and when you get a close-up of somebody, it's not to show, as in Casablanca, when you get that dolly shot of Rick after he seeing, sees uh, Ingrid Bergman for the first time walk into to Rick's cafe. It's not to show this tormented soul and we're supposed to feel sorry for him. Mm. It's to show that this is a man who's isolated from his community. Mm. And the goal of the film is to get back to a place where you can have medium, long, and long shots and show him with his friends and his family and mm-hmm. his his community. Yeah, so film um, as an institution, it, right. it shapes you. Right. So it's part of the spectacle right. argument as well. That, right. Um, well, so what, what Debor and uh, the other uh, Marxists he was working with realized is that we had been colonized to the depths of our very being right. by capitalism. Mm-hmm. And he said that w- there was, even in these moments where we think that we can be our most authentic, mm-hmm. that we can't be. That right. we always revert back to some idea of what Hollywood says we look like. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, colonized by this by the scene itself, by yes. the by the image that we've yeah. been fed on, and yeah. it's even worse now. I would assume, right? Yes, is <laughs> it all the, image at this point? I know, and it's yeah. our relationship to the image right. that he that he called the spectacle. Mm, mm. Um, do we still have time? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if you want to know more about the Situationists, come yes. to Wounded Galaxies. You should, yes. And also there's going to be a film uh, tomorrow night, mm. Wednesday night, in the Monroe County Public Library. It's Guy Debord's film uh, in Jirum Imusnachte and Consumimur 
Inyi. What does that mean, Joe? 1978. It's a palindrome, and I'm not going to try Holy to. smokes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to try to translate. You can also obviously read uh, the Society of the Spectacle. It's available yes. online even. Marxist.org yes. has it. Uh, I don't know what translation it is, yeah. but you don't have to pay for that either. That's right. And Society of the Spectacle, the movie, mm. is next Tuesday awesome. in the Moving Image Archive. The Boar's movie. The Boar's yeah, yeah, movie, yeah. yes. Fantastic. Well, that's our show. Thanks to Joan Hawkins, friend, return guest, occasional guest host for Interchange. Joan Hawkins, Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies at the IU Media School. Uh, Thanks again, Joan, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Our closing music is Volunteered Slavery by Roland Kirk off of the 1968 album of the same name. Next time on Interchange, The Terror and the Fall of Robespierre. Between June 1970, excuse me, between June 1793 and the end of July 1794, there were 16,594 official death sentences in France, of which 2,639 were in Paris. The Reign of Terror or the Terror, the label given by some historians to a period during the French Revolution after the First French Republic was established. Its beginning is disputed, but there is general consensus that it ended with the fall of Robespierre, who was executed on July 28, 1794. We'll be joined by IU professor Rebecca Spang for the Terror and the Fall of Robespierre next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Bryce Martin, our studio engineer, executive producer, Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You got to spend all day in bed with me, oh yeah!